Hello, do I know you? Do you know me? Maybe not, but what if we can find out what we have in common by listening? You know, I really believe in the power of storytelling for a better understanding. In this podcast, you will hear the voice of people who by choice or by obligation have moved to a new place. Culture shock, self-discovery, belonging, these are all parts of the journey. I never expected to have such a culture shock when I moved here and uh, for many years the Americans were just a mystery to me. Yes, we all have diverse backgrounds, but shouldn't we try to discover what we deeply share? You know, you meet all these people from all these different cultures and there's certain things that's the same everywhere. My nature is to find common ground uh, with anyone. I always can. I'm Valérie. Welcome, perfect stranger. Today I welcome Alison. She will share a professional experience with us as a coach and a personal experience moving and living in different countries. We will learn more about what belonging means to us humans. The fundamental anchor for most human beings is an idea of where they belong. We will speak about what change triggers in us. What does change tend to provoke in people, even if they've initiated the change. It's like, I'm going to move somewhere. It completely changed me. No question about it. And I think some places change people for the better. And we will learn to deal with reverse cultural shock when coming back to our home country. But when you come back and say, okay, now I'm staying, you discover the gaps between what you knew and how you were in your own culture and how you are now. And it's hard to close them. First, you just feel the discomfort, disconnect, before you know what are the things that I need to be okay here now. So, are you ready to listen to her? Today, we're going to speak about belonging. So how would you begin this discussion? About belonging? (laughs) Uh, Well, what I've learned in, and I suppose I knew it, but what's really clear to me as a result of my own experiences in life, traveling, being in exile, not harsh exile, Mm -hmm. political exile or economic exile, but exile by choice. Mm that we all need anchors and the fundamental anchor for most human beings is an idea of where they belong. That can be a geographical thing, that can be in relationship, that can be professionally. It's so critical, especially in times of change, for us to know. It's a question I ask a lot of people in change. You know, what are your terms now? You want to head in this direction. What do you need to bring? And how do you stay? How do you sustain you know, a change you've made or a place you've gone? I've certainly read 
that it is a fundamental need for human beings mm. because we're social animals and uh, it seems even if you're in a group of two it seems so important for people to have answered the question even if they know that answer might shift as a result of other things but knowing where you belong and and I would say on a deeper level and this is really the work of Brene Brown the sense of belonging to yourself of knowing and doing the work, you know, this is who I am, this is how I got here, this is what's up for me at this point in my life, this is the work I have to do, these are the questions I want to answer, these are the people I want to have conversations with. But that belonging to self is really the cornerstone. And when we're in alignment there, then actually, paradoxically, I'd say we're better at, you know, exile, we're better at travel, we're better at change, we're better at a lot of things as a result. Yeah, I didn't think about that because I always thought of belonging outwards, right. linked to other people or to places, or, uh, but I never thought about oneself. That makes a lot of sense. Yes, it's a powerful idea. Uh, you know, Brene Brown is a researcher in the areas of vulnerability and shame. And so the connection there is that we have these profound experiences of feeling ashamed and that really what feeds them in part is the possibility that we won't be able to belong as a mm -hmm. result of what we've revealed about ourselves. Yes. And so often those things are so much bigger in our own minds than they are in other people's, but, but still, um, and so it's, it's such deep work she does to help us see, you know, what is the path then? Is it becoming a louder, bigger version of you that will hoodwink people? <laughs> is it to own that vulnerability in a particular way and work with it and share it so that you actually build connection? You know, that of course is what her remedy is, I guess I'd yeah. say. So those are her ideas, but I would say having traveled as much as I did and early in my life as a young adult, and then the work I do now as a coach, it's a lot about helping people, you know, see what they stand for. And then once you begin to see that, you, you can see where you belong. Like, and who belongs with you? And where do you no longer belong? Mm -hmm. Because you've evolved in some way. And it's not necessarily a value judgment that it's better where you are than where you were. It is different. And so adjusting that and understanding. But there's something that you will always belong to that you can't change, like your family. I mean, these are things that won't shift and you will always belong in a way. It's not, you can't choose like... To no longer be Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think if you begin this process of inquiry, you know, self-discovery, we are meant to change and evolve, just as children do, so do adults. And so, sure, there are pieces of our identity which are probably fixed. Family culture, of course, you know, but those are the components we're given. But I think we do often, and in a way it's the way it should be. This is how I feel as a parent. You know, I want my kids to outgrow my limiting beliefs, which are informed by my culture, family, ethnicity, or whatever. And so it's how to, it's how to come back into family with respect for the elder in some ways, but with a clear sense of your, I would say, your terms. Sometimes the necessity to choose differently than what you've been told is the way to choose. Yes, yes. Yeah. And it takes quite a bit of nuance, I would say.
And so to get another word that I find interesting, it's fitting because, you know, speaking mm. with people who move to different places, it's this struggle to fit in. And I heard that fitting, it's not what you should do because that it's, you're forcing yourself to get in a group and you, you, you are not able to be yourself. Mm -hmm. So what you want is to belong. Yeah. So I don't know what you think about fitting in. Well, I think we all do it. I, I think especially in new situations, look for ways to be part of something. Even if we might sense this isn't necessarily right for me, I would say the bottom line is it has to feel safe for anybody to have a chance of belonging. And so environments where there's a lot of judgment or maybe, you know, sort of rigid rules and sets of beliefs, they don't tend to be places I would gravitate to now at the point where I am because now I see we have choices about where we affiliate and with whom. Those are what I would call the terms. Of course, I can think of times that I was in big cities. I lived in Paris, I lived in Madrid, I lived in Rio. Of course, those places have a culture. And a place like Paris has very different rules for those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. And you have to spend a period of time in exile even when you're in that place, right? In a particular kind where you're observing and you're learning and you may not be participating much and you may not be invited in much. But there's still plenty to do to discern, is this safe for me? Is this the right place for me to belong? So, I don't know if that's a direct answer to your question, but I, I think we all want to know that we fit in in some ways. But I think the more mature you get, the more you, you realize it's not a choice I can make because it's a compromise in some way of who I am. And so you have more time alone. So then the advice you would give to somebody who is moving to a new place to be conscious that there would be a time where you are more observing and, and learning. If, I mean, you can't jump in and, you know, try to have as many friends right away as you can and yeah. with the, because maybe you're anxious to be alone in this new place. Yeah. So you have to accept that you will have this time, maybe we are, you are alone, but yeah, uh, you can then understand yeah, the culture. Well, I mean, you're in transition, and I think transitions by definition involve some alone time. Uh, if you rush them, you tend to jump over important steps, and then you don't know why you're not adjusting. So when I think of times I spent abroad, I spent a lot of time alone. And I still put in place some cornerstones that were important for me. So whatever those rituals are, and they can be of any kind, you know, I'm a swimmer. I've swum all over the world. So I've found everything from, you know, the Olympic pool that was put in in Barcelona after the Olympics to the little, you know, dinky place <laughs> only the old people swim in, you know, and it's fine. But what it gave me was a, an, an anchor in the water, a routine, a place that I went. And sure enough, I began to know people there outside of any high-pressure context where I need to make a connection or have an intelligent conversation or any of the things that we think of that we need to do to fit in. Because think about it, when you're in a new culture, very often you don't know what to say. You don't know how to say it. There's another language, you know, in an eloquent way. And there's this gap between what you might be able to express in your own language and what people at your level are saying. 
And even if it's not a function of education, you don't have access yet. And so I realize in retrospect, finding the pool and hanging out at the pool, you know, the idiom was not literature. You know, we chatted. And that was a way to create something for myself. That is really the challenge, is, is how to hold on to who you are and then take on board the things that you're learning and allow yourself to change and evolve. And, and you're in an entirely different context. And it's hard work. So I love what you said. If, you, if, if I were able to say to somebody who's moving somewhere, give yourself this period of time where you're really an observer. If you want to belong somewhere, you do have to look at the ways in which you feel that you don't belong and understand what am I telling myself? Am I telling myself I'm just not as smart as these people? Or I'm not as, I don't come from the right places? Or what is it that you're telling yourself? You have to have that degree of honesty with yourself. And then on some level you have to value who you are. And then go from there. And if you're finding yourself in places where you're devalued, then it's not going to work. But there are bigger things that happen because, of course, coming from the United States and living in Western Europe, as a woman, I felt I was largely respected for who I was. That's not always the case in other cultures. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do in that individual encounter? Do you make that person responsible for your feeling? I mean, how do you do that? You know, how do you communicate across those kinds of beliefs mm -hmm. and that culture? It's very interesting to me. You didn't live in a country where you had to face that. Brazil is, you know, still, I would say it's, well, Southern Europe and Brazil is probably more in the direction of, let's just put it this way, that women play a certain role. It's different than the role we play here. And some of it is keyed around appearance, how you need to appear. So not so challenging directly, maybe. And perhaps a bit more visually appealing. Put <laughs> it that way. And, and so there's a game there as well. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, how do you do so without um, compromising? I think most people who travel enough begin to find those levers, if you will. Would you say? Yes, but not everybody. Some people will arrive in every country like, I am who I am, and they have to accept me the way I am, the way I speak, the way yes. I can be direct or whatever. And they don't care. I would, I would disagree with that for the following reason. I think that ultimately you're a guest and I just think that you'll have a better time <laughs> if you pay yes. attention to what your host's preferences are. Now, of course, there are yeah, boundaries. Yeah, it's to, to what you are ready to... Right. I'm not... To accept. Right. Correct. I mean, there, there's compromises you can't mm -hmm. make. But, you know, if you're a casual traveler, even if you've gone to study somewhere, which is what I did, I still see that, uh, you know, there are ways we can offend other people and we can be utterly clueless that we're doing so because mm -hmm. we haven't really bothered to pay attention. So uh, what are Americans known for, unfortunately? Beginning with English. Defaulting as if, well, you, you would know English, right? Speaking loudly. Not being aware of our physical space in restaurants with our children. You know, there's so many things that are unfortunately true. And, I, and, and there are other versions of that from other nationalities mm. going other places, yes. of course. I'm not bashing Americans. Mm. But as an American, I would say I probably overcorrected. I did not want to be a part of that. 
You don't want to be the stereotype. Well, who really wants to be a stereotype? We've all had humbling moments in other places. You don't have to travel far. I've had humbling mo moments here in Washington, you know, thinking to myself, I don't really know what's going on here. Whether it's, you know, a consulting assignment or meeting a client somewhere and I'm thinking, I don't know what the rules are here. So that's when I think we have to have the humility to either ask or be quiet yeah. and observe. I'm, of course, so much further down the road now. I think questions I could have asked it would have saved me a lot of suffering, you know. Earlier, I would ask now. I, I think judgment is the other part of that. You know, that torpedoes connection. If people are feeling judged or sensing, and I don't mean judgment in the assessment way. In other mm -hmm. words, we can assess an environment. We're not necessarily saying it's good or bad. We're just trying to figure it out. But coming in with the... Things aren't being done properly here from the beginning. We've all seen the disgruntled traveler at the hotel desk who's saying, well, the pillows are hard, you know, or whatever they're saying. It's not that it is in and of itself not a legitimate request, but how you deliver it. Yes. And what you might ask. And this is where you're right. I mean, my ear for language has helped me so many times because those phrases that we preface our requests with, the way you engage from the first word you say, yeah. but you, I don't know how you would say in English, or you use like side roads to come to your main complaint or topic or whatever. Yeah. You know, in some places you don't just go directly to the point if it's something that's it's a, an issue. Yes. You have to yeah. wrap it in something, right? <laughs> and then deliver the garbage. <laughs> yes, right, right. You know, it can be very offensive. It's interesting because direct communication is one of the competencies that an executive coach has to have. So what does that look like? And how do we create a context for something that we're going to say that might be hard to hear? Uh, you can always phrase it in a question, mm -hmm. you know, have you considered? But in the end, you're delivering something that may be hard to hear. So there is a place for it. And I've certainly had moments, and they were probably more in places like Paris than in places like Rio, where it's totally different vibe around communication, where probably had I had the personality, I would say almost, you know, the thing to do is to start the duel, you know, and to just say, well, you will, and you know, it isn't my way, and I would say it's almost universal that most people react negatively if you come with a criticism right mm -hmm. off the bat. And so it's something I learned early on from a coach I love, that people listen better if you listen to them first. The better you are at inquiring, the richer your conversations will be, theoretically. Yes. So I, I know the temptation to take on a stand, there are times to take a stand, mm -hmm. but I guess you have to know what are you willing to lose. Anyway, it, it's, every culture has ways, I think, in which you, you have to signal that you're outside and that you acknowledge and that you defer. Mm -hmm. I think it's so powerful to do that. 
even if you may be the most fluent in the language of somebody they've ever met, you're not. You know, <laughs> it's just interesting back to belonging. I mean, you're you're a guest. Yes. And when you learn a language, you don't learn the culture if you learn it at school. So once you arrive in the country, even if you are fluent, you have no clue yeah. of how it works. And oh, the learning curve is really steep. <laughs> it's very steep. <laughs> so you, it, you were in shock when you arrived in Paris. Oh my goodness, two months of shock. Yes, <laughs> yes. I had a terrible job because I was put in a department store. I was a program, an exchange program, and I worked in a department store in Paris in children's equipment, shoes and accessories. Now, I had been a, a literature and language major, so I had no idea what people were asking for in many instances. And I would have to ask them, could you explain what it is you're looking for? And they would say, what, you push the children in. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was one of the most humbling experiences. And the second month, I was put in customer complaint. Now, the advantage there was that we also processed the VAT. So you had people coming with stacks of receipts, 50, 100 receipts, who had been in, in France for a while, and they had gone to Printemps numerous times, and now they wanted to get the, the return on yeah. it. And so they mostly came from other countries. And wherever I could speak another language other than French, I did. <laughs> or speaking French to Africans was different than speaking French to French people. Mm -hmm. The level of judgment and critique I felt was being applied was different. So that was in some ways, paradoxically, an easier job. So <laughs> it was a really steep learning curve. But in a way, you have those kinds of experiences, and then if a shopkeeper mistreats you, well, you know, I've had worse. <laughs> and I got better, so you know, it all worked out. You know, I, I interviewed a man the other day who said, you know, in Switzerland you go, I don't know, in a cafe mm -hmm. and you order a beer and the person maybe is in a bad mood. And so she, she will serve you with the bad mood here. They are always smiling and saying, how are you doing? So it's really nice because maybe you don't want to have, you know. Somebody else's bad mood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I guess you experienced that in Paris. Well, I would say in, in the service industry, Paris is, an ex is also Paris, I have to say, because I traveled a lot around yeah, France. Yeah, so there's a big amount of stress. The, people are very stressed. There is a high bar. People judge each other a lot. I, I would say appearance and how well you speak and what you're saying, where you go and all of that. So it's a bit of a fishbowl effect. And so stressed out people are not generous. Yes. Usually, with their time or their attention. And if you're struggling with a language, you know, it's just, it's a setup, right? Outside of Paris, I didn't have the experience. Mm -hmm. But so I, I want to say that because I have good friends there and now I, I feel comfortable there. But you do need to arm yourself. You, know, you need to recognize if the shopkeeper is having a bad day, then it may, I may not want to be in that shop, you know, which is really doesn't happen much here. I would agree with you, and I would say there are certain rules about superficial communication mm -hmm. that operate here yes. that don't operate there. Yes. And, and so you can find yourself disappointed when it's really a cultural thing, and it's nothing personal. Going to 
going directly from Paris to Rio, that's a huge change. It was a big shift. And the biggest change was in the superficial communication. The things that people say to each other on the street, in the bus, in a restaurant, in a shop. And I didn't have to say five words in Portuguese and people would say, Oh, you speak beautifully. Where did you learn Portuguese? <laughs> I, I had to work so hard in France to ever have anybody say, Oh, that was well put together. <laughs> Whatever it was. So that was a huge shift. And I realized the armor I had built up on some level, I could put aside. So I, I discovered this much more spontaneous side of myself and much more trust. Now I was older and I had had that experience. So as I said, you start to realize what are my bottom lines? You know, where is it not okay? And I'm feeling like you're trying to beat me up. I didn't do anything wrong. I was trying to buy something, you know. <laughs> um, but that was, so the, the public space and the discourse that people are in, in that space is so much more welcoming. It's just lighter. There's a yeah, lot more banter. Mm. And Rio, of course, is even on a scale for Brazilians out there as kind of a crazy place. But somehow that was, that was what I needed next, was to, to experience that side of myself where I could just trust myself in the, in the moment to handle something. You know, there's a reason I carried those books around Paris that I didn't carry around Rio like phrase books and things, yes. because I didn't need yes. them. So in Paris, you struggle to fit in. On some, in some ways, yes. You really wanted to, to do the best you could to be accepted by Parisian. Mm. Uh, that was a hard task, I guess. <laughs> oh, I never got there. <laughs> <laughs> and in Rio, you didn't feel that need. I would say you're correct about that. And I would say that, and in fact, when my father came to visit, I had lived there almost three years. He turned to me and he said, you have found the antidote to your upbringing, which was so oh, interesting. Well. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a bad upbringing, but it was nonetheless uh, very much around achievement and excelling. And, and I don't fault them for that, but, it, but it, it, as a life plan can get rather exhausting. And plus you're only really drawing on one set of skills. So what, Brazil and Brazilian culture, the spontaneity and the lightness to it and the amount of fun, you know, that people have with each other and all of that, it was a whole new avenue. It completely changed me, no question about it. And I think some places change people for the better. And I will always credit the generosity and the warmth and the, the humanity of Brazilian culture and the people that I met and that I knew, you know, for those changes. Yes, I took it on board, but it was offered to me over and over and over again. And then when I came back to Washington, so I, I did come back, I moved to Washington from Rio. That was the hardest transition I ever made. Ah, yes? Oh, <laughs> I was lost for months. So that's what they call reverse culture shock. Reverse culture shock, yeah. And you know, I see that in my work. So working a lot with military, many of whom have big experiences abroad, and then they come back. Of course, they're coming back if they're deploying. And, but when you come back and say, okay, now I'm staying, or at least for the foreseeable future, I'm here, you discover the gaps between what you knew and how you were in your own culture and how you are now. 
and it's hard to close them. First, you just feel the discomfort, disconnect, before you know what are the things that I need to be okay here now. My experience was more expansiveness of living in a culture that is so connected, where, where relationship is so valued, where people have time for each other. Um, to come to Washington where really this is a city of work and identity is built a lot around your job and your affiliations professionally. Of course there are other people here who don't buy into it, but coming back to it and then enrolling in a program and, you know, master's degree is the goal and all of that, I realized how out of practice I was. And I spent the first semester, floundering is not quite the right word because, you know, I got the job done. However, internally, I was very unsettled because I could not simply come back and start again on the same terms. That is the, the work also that I do now. People want to do something differently, what are their terms? So in order to do that, you need to step back and say, well, what are they required? What is required here? What are my terms? Is there an alignment? If there isn't an alignment, maybe it's not the right place. Once you begin to embark on the work of really knowing the world, in a way, the best thing that could happen is that you can find a way to be at home in most places, but that means that home is no longer one place. So there isn't sort of a going home again. And that's what you give up. But then I think there are places, and maybe Paris is one of them, where if you can, if you can break the code and you can perform consistently at a high enough level, you're in. I've seen that. Americans or foreigners have made that in Paris their home and they feel very at home. It's a different proposition. Or as one Parisian said to me, don't take it personally, we mistreat each other. <laughs> it's, it's not true. about you. It's you true. Know? Yeah. Uh, you know, I have friends who they say they miss that. I can't, I can't believe that. That people, they find people are too nice here and kind of, come on. I mean, <laughs> you can't miss being mistreated. <laughs> It's, no. intellectu it's intellectual <laughs> combat, is what it is. And I understand, especially if you're good at it, that you, know, you miss the opportunity to show how good you are. But, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. But it's exhausting, I would say, on a human level, day after day, to mm -hmm. be in a proving game. And that, I would say, is what I also realized going from Paris to Rio, is that proving game does exact a cost. You never settle into any sense of sufficiency. There's always more you've got to do. And uh, perhaps it's a bit more in the other direction in Brazil, where it's just having such a sense of, it's all good. You know, whatever's going on yes. is fine. You know, we'll figure it out. It's just this, this way of seeing the world, which was so much less stressful and much more accepting and so easier to belong. Again, I think you have to be somewhere a very long time to find a comfort level there. Although there are people who are really good at picking mm -hmm. things up and they just go right to it. I'm yeah. more introverted. So just by personality. Another thing I've learned, you know, I, I saw all of my transitions to these different places only through the lens of how I was performing, never through the lens of who I was. And now I realize, oh, I'm not that person. I'm not going to have 15 friends on the street where I move in Zurich. 
it's just not going to happen in the first <laughs> month because that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I had another metric. So I, I think language and the ability to access sort of the inside track, whether it's through humor or uh, complex intellectual discussions or swearing or whatever it is, it, it, it takes a long time, but it depends, you know, your experience of it depends a bit on your perspective on it. And so as a younger person, I had more at stake. It mattered more to me. And, and so I, it was harder. <laughs> now that it doesn't matter to me so much, you know, it tends to come easier. I have more, much more compassion for myself now if I do struggle in some way. And I struggled a lot in these transitions, and it took me a long time to be more generous with myself. My instinct was to be generous with other people before I was generous with myself. So there's an interesting balance that you have to begin to strike, I think, to be a traveler, you know, and, and to take yourself with you, <laughs> you know, rather than yes. create a self that you think, well, this self will be acceptable here, mm-hmm. so I'll be this self. Yes. But rather to be a version of yourself, but to be yourself. Yeah, it would be great if you could travel and just, you know, belong generally to the human species and everywhere you go you can just find this basic thing in common that we share and just the fact that we are human as you said social animals yes i just want to communicate yes and that's good enough to belong with the other person who wants the same just this i recognize you you recognize me like we are the same in a way oh that's so let's start from there yes imagine the possibilities is your fear? Well, my fear is fear itself. Fear as as an emotional phenomenon, it narrows your calculus to one of survival and minimizing damage and protecting yourself. My fear is that we not really reckon with the consequence of fear, which is also fragmentation. And when we fragment as a species, then we, we don't draw on our greatest assets, which is mm-hmm. the ability to come together and recognize, you know, above and beyond tribe and nation, whatever, our common interests. So I think about that. And I think about it in my own situation of how not myself to let fear get the upper hand mm-hmm. and to, to maintain a respectful distance from fear and not let it overwhelm me because it does overwhelm your thinking and it overwhelms your creativity and it overwhelms your generosity and so sharing it with other people is important you know acknowledging yourself while wow, noticing how fearful I am and find, then finding the courage as you know many Brene Brown among them have defined as taking action uh, not in the absence of fear but in spite of fear so holding that polarity in a, in a healthy way Fear has its, it serves its purpose, and we can't let it hijack us. You as a coach, do you think we could have a specific type of lesson in school for children that would help in general, you know, human being for communication, for acceptation, like... I know some work on emotions, on communication, on, you know, I have a specific time uh, during the day to work on that. I think it should be integrated throughout the curriculum 
And I think the question you ask is, what's your experience of that? What emotions are coming up for you? It's not hard, but we're sentient beings. Our emotions are our drivers, and there are emotions driving what we're experiencing. And so we have to be able to equip. I, I agree with your premise. You know, from the earliest ages, we have to equip people to pay attention to how they're feeling and how other people are feeling. It's called emotional intelligence, right? But I, I think it's, it's an excellent point because our emotional hardware, so our senses are really, on some level, what we also need to draw on not just our thought process. And I think the more integrated you can be in working with both, the more integrated you can be as a human being, and the more tolerance that's got to breed for other human beings. It, it does begin at home. And so some of this harshness and judgment that we're experiencing, it, you, you know those seeds were planted. So I love what you're raising, and I think, and I think also as you age, at least this has been my experience, I really find myself wanting to cultivate in children a different perspective, a different sensitivity, you know, an understanding of their experience that comes through their own emotional, you know, to validate that. Yes. I want to thank you, Alison, for all the insights you gave uh, today. It was really super interesting. You're so inspiring. I love and, talking uh, to you. And you know, it give like we say in English, food for thought. Yes. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me.